This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. From Postcard from the Past and Wardour Studios. This is Podcast from the Past, the Postcard Podcast. This is the podcast where we stroke oversized good luck cats, bask under unnaturally blue skies, and squint at messages written in shaky handwriting behind a windbreak as we discover the picture postcards brought in by my guests. And together we explore what it was that caused them to keep hold of those little cardboard oblongs. Now, each time on this podcast, I welcome two guests, and it's their postcards that act as tiny prompts to send us hurtling towards memories, stories, and sometimes mysteries. I'm Tom Jackson, and I'm delighted to say that my guests today are singer and songwriter Justin Curry and archivist and ladybird book enthusiast Helen Day. Helen and Justin, welcome to Podcast from the Past. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Helen Day has made it her mission to celebrate, catalogue, champion and exhibit Ladybird books, those illustrated hardbacks perfectly designed to fit into small hands and young imaginations. And through her excellent blog, which you've probably seen, Ladybird Flyway Home, and through exhibitions and her Twitter, uh, Helen has given many of us a new appreciation for this uh, publishing phenomenon of the past, and particularly, I suppose, the work of the artists whose illustrations are, for many of us, still colour-printed in our memories. And Helen comes to the studio today bearing an AL postmark? What's that? That's right, yes, AL. Um, it just seemed right because I was born in an AL postmark and then I've travelled all over the shop. I've, I've uh, moved... Where are we? Where is AL? Uh, it's the Hertfordshire, sorry. It's, oh, uh, lovely. It's St Albans region. So I was actually born in St Albans. Uh, but I only lived there for five years and then I was all over the place, travelling all around the country, around the world, and then by an amazing coincidence, I find myself back here again now. Or, so. or more, more than a coincidence, maybe. Well, it isn't, in fact. No, it is. Really? A random set of facts that lead me four miles away from where I was born. Wow. Well, good for you. Now, Helen, here's the killer question. Do you still send postcards? I'm afraid I do don't i i haven't sent any postcards for a long time and perhaps not coincidentally i haven't received any either well that's uh, yes there seems to be a justice in that yes i i do handle them a lot because old postcards have a lot in common with old ladybird books 
Oh, they, tell me more. They're, they're, well, they're about <laughs> the same size for starters. They're the same they size. They are, yes. And yes. very often they are used as bookmarks. Ah, uh, yes, yes, so, yes. So how often do I open old ladybird books and then another little window from the past, you know, one that you've drawn attention to, you read it through. And it's a bit like um, when there isn't a postcard, that, that the, there's a sort of postcard-like inscription very often on the, on the front of an old ladybird book. Yes. That gives you that little window into the world. Yeah, so an autograph, in the same way that a postcard is effectively an autograph document of, of, of relatively little historic value normally, but it is nonetheless exactly. an autograph document. With and without context, exactly. There must that. be some famous historical postcards. I mean, did, did, are there Churchill postcards or something? Gladstone used to send a lot of postcards. Is that um, not a bit of a, a security issue? <laughs> well, I think they were mainly saying, thank you so much for your kind wishes, right, and okay. no, I don't want to come to tea. Um, <laughs> but there are postcards from the Titanic... Wow. Um, just before wow. it went out uh, into the ocean. Um, in fact, rather tragically, the one that I have in mind, the message on it is um, that it's a great boat and wish you were here, which <laughs> is kind of an irony as heavy as the Titanic. But I think, I mean, I often say to people, if people say about the show, they say, oh, I don't know if I've got any postcards. I say, well, go to your bookcase and shake a few books and you'll probably find some that you'd forgotten about. Yeah, I did look at some books Yesterday, because they do they crop up in the weirdest places. You pull out an old book and you, you've used a postcard and there's somebody whom you, whose existence you've completely forgotten about. Yes. And often it can be quite painful because you've got the guilt of realising you never finished that book and then you've managed to blot this person out of your life. So that was probably painful. Yeah. So put it back, put it away quickly, I think. It's just a series of failures. <laughs> there you go. That, that's, that's probably the subtitle of uh, this whole collection. <laughs> Well, let's, let's turn to you, Justin. And Listeners, you will know Justin Curry as a songwriter, a singer, a pop star. And his voice and his lyrics have been part of our world since, well, 1985 in the first case, I think. Yeah. Um, he was founder, lead singer of Delamitri. And you'll know his hits, Nothing Ever Happens, Always the Last to Know, Roll to Me, Kiss This Thing Goodbye. These are songs that are sitting inside your head. Um, and outside of Delamitri, he's recorded solo albums. And he may or may not have been involved in the brilliant and strange Uncle Devil show. But at the moment, the news, I suppose, is that Delamitri are back. Uh, we're waiting for a new record, the seventh studio album, first since 2002. And that's called Fatal Mistakes? It is. And uh, what are the fatal mistakes? Um, well, I think either we are, or the audience is, or the album is, or each song on the album is a fatal mistake. <laughs> that can't be true. <laughs> So, I mean, have... the thing about album titles is you want them to be as vague as possible or at least to have as many different interpretations as possible. Um, you know, if the, al if the album title is These Songs Are About Death, then there's nowhere to go. Right, right. You've limited yourself too much. Yeah. And you won't get much radio play. No. <laughs> but Fatal Mistakes is fairly downbeat. It is. Um, when I, when I, um, I had a Zoom, Zoom call with Cooking Vinyl, the record company, and it was the first time I'd really met anybody from Cooking Vinyl, and they asked me what the title was, and there was, when I told them, there was a, you could hear the tumbleweed blowing through the office. Come uh, again, I, Justin, come I, again. But I, because I write the lyrics, I reserved the right to, to come up with the, the first ideas for album titles, and I just wasn't going to shift on it, and I'm still really happy with it. And it's the name of the collection, it's not the name of a song within the collection. No, it's not, there, there isn't a title track. Right, so it really does cover cover what you see there. Yeah. Now, Justin, you come to us today with um, a postmark that people might not expect. It's an LE8. 
postmark? What's that mean? Yeah. Um, well, that's where um, I I was a kid. Um, my dad moved to, or the family moved to from Glasgow to Leicestershire in 1970, I think, when I was um, when I was born in 64, so I'd have been six, um, and I spent four or five gloriously happy years in the English countryside. So I always think of myself as being half English. Okay. Um, which really rails, really rails a lot. <laughs> sure, of for some reason, it rails a lot of Scottish people. Uh, Always fight the cliche. It's important. Exactly. But I've got extremely fond memories. When we moved there, um, you know, it's a very small village, still very rural, I mean, kind of stuck in the 1940s almost. Wow. And uh, we, we all had quite sort of soft Glasgow accents and thought that we were terribly well-spoken. And nobody could understand us uh, oh. because initially they thought we were, we, or the kids thought we were Welsh. And they would say, why are you speaking Welsh? And we're speaking English <laughs> and we're from Scotland. Um, so, yeah, it was a bit of a learning curve for everybody involved. And this uh, was Kibworth, is it? Kibworth, yeah. Kibworth. Right, Kibworth and- Harcourt. Was the bit right. we were in, and then Kibworth Beecham was on the other side of the. These sound like nineteen forties film actors. <laughs> yes, <laughs> starring Mark Kibberth Rutherford. Beauchamp. <laughs> <laughs> he was great in that film. <laughs> I should and have that... thought of that for a stage name, shouldn't I? Yeah, it was never too late. Never too late. No, but that this Leicestershire, this this there's a Ladybird connection, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. There is indeed. Yeah, a Ladybird books are are born in Leicestershire. Oh wow! So just in in Loughborough. Was where it all began, and uh, yeah, so uh, the sort of idyllic childhood or the, the sort of uh, little rural countryside that you're talking about that uh, sounds like Ladybird Land. Well, doesn't it? I guess that's where I would have got my first Ladybird books actually at that sort of age. Were you one of the children who was given a tour of the of the, of the Ladybird factory? No, and now I know that was possible. I'm extremely angry and resentful. Oh, that would have been good. <laughs> the chance is gone, I'm afraid. It closed in uh, 2000. Uh, yeah, but you still got probably... still got my Ladybird books. Quite right somewhere. too. What have you yeah. got? Tell me what you've got. Uh, well, the, my favourite one is about under underwater exploration. Ah, yes. Which has got these incredibly mysterious. It's so haunting, isn't it's it? It's really haunting. Um, these creatures from the deep and the diving bell, and um, yeah, I find that very exciting. Me too. <laughs> but you could look out your window when you're in. Uh... Kibworth Harcourt, and you were probably seeing life of a, from a Ladybird book going on. Yeah, there was a bit of that. I mean, it was extremely... The Whistling Postman and the... Uh-huh. It was, <laughs> it was um, incredibly idyllic. And there was quite a bit of mystery in the village because there was... At the bottom of our street, we lived at one main street, and I think which was the old, oldest part of the two villages. Um, and at the bottom of the road, there was this fabulous kind of haunted manor house oh, with a wow. big, with a really high wall so you couldn't see in and reputedly two old spinsters lived there who n- nobody ever saw but there was a tunnel built um at some point during the english civil war between the the manor house and the church and somewhere else and reputedly you could you could go down and uh, and see this tunnel that we, we never did and of course this could have been a um, not an urban myth, it could have been a, a rural myth. <laughs> but those um, summer holidays were full of stories like that. Oh, we've ventured yeah. into the into inner blight now, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, we better well let's cut cut away from the before we before we start to get sticky with nostalgia. Um, <laughs> Justin, when did you last send a postcard? Well, 
quite a while ago, much to my shame. I used to send a lot of postcards from tour, especially from yeah. from America, um, and write an incredibly tiny writing with my trusty Bic fine line, the yellow <laughs> ones, which are the best writing implement ever invented. Um, and occasionally when I'm around at friends' houses, I see these stuck onto pin boards. Uh, and really I sent, still. I, uh, yeah, I sent a lot of them because there was quite a lot going on. And it was it, certainly in the in 86 when we were first toured America, it was impossible to phone home. It was extortionate. Right. And um, So this so was they, a practical solution at the time. It was, yeah, just to let people know you were still alive and what you were doing. Um, and But the last time I sent a postcard, I rather foolishly... Uh, signed up to one of these digital sites that allows you to oh, yes. write a postcard and use your own photograph for the front of the postcard, and then that would get sent to your friend, um, you know, from somewhere in, in Britain, I guess, if you were abroad, and that went down extremely badly because, oh. the, well, because it's very <laughs> impersonal. Right, because um, the handwriting though, is sort of fake handwriting. Uh huh. Yeah, uh, that that went down very badly. So oh, I've dear. never done that again. <laughs> They're quite a good idea, I think. I don't see any problem with them. But I could sort of see my my girlfriend was was the sort of front of the queue in in the in terms of customer complaints. Because, <laughs> I mean, because the reason I did it was I thought, well, she'll get this postcard in four days as opposed to two weeks or however long they they normally seem to, yes. seem to take. But yes, the the Without your actual penmanship on the thing, um, and with a picture of some bleak urban American um, freeway scene, they didn't have the same resonance, you know. And also, your own your own photograph being on a postcard—that's not right. No, and I don't quite know why that is. No, because there is. Well, as one one I guess an earlier guest in this program was tried to convince me that the the, the postcard photographs there was something always superior to them. Um, but I don't know that that's always the case. I think your own photos are great, but maybe they're just different things. Yeah, and they're they're quite odd things because often they're not they're not the greatest photographs in the world. Postcard photographs they're just they're just delivering the information that this is a place. They're not you know they're very really artfully taken, <clears throat> and you do we used to find the most. I'm used to find them in Britain as well, but you especially find them in the United States. Postcards of of freeway interchanges and yes. you know the ugliest 70s <laughs> architecture that, no, that had obviously been printed up when these buildings were new and the local population was terribly excited by the new Holiday Inn or something. Yes. Um, but they would be languishing at the back of the racks in the truck stop because nobody had fancied them for years and they were always big, you know, big favourites, those things. But when I was a kid, I mean, there were postcards in WH Smith's. I grew up in the suburbs. And there was there was there were no tourists in the suburbs. No one had no one came to visit on a day trip. But there mm. were postcards of the the traffic junctions, yeah. Because everywhere had them. There must have been postcards of Kibworth Harcourt. Yeah, I don't remember them being any, but there might have been. Just tedious ones of traffic lights or whatever. But yes, you're right. That you get these weird suburban postcards of just nothingness. And of course, I'm always looking for connections of postcards. And I think in your your songwriting, Justin, I think you. And I, I might well be putting words in your mouth, but you like details. You like uh -huh. things, little, yeah. little, little moments. And, and I, I, I think there's something postcardy about that somehow. Yeah. Well, of course, Glasgow, Glasgow pop music was kind of invented by a record label called Postcard. Of course, the, of course. In the uh, you, late you 70s. You must know those guys? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I've met Edwin a couple of times. I didn't know Alan Horn, who was this Sven Galli, is that how you pronounce that word? Behind. He was the kind of Andy Warhol of Glasgow. Um, and they would uh, issue little postcards in their seven-inch singles, which was also terribly exciting. The first Aztec camera single had their lyrics to Just Like Gold written on a postcard, which I still have. Um, carefully filed away in a box in my garage somewhere. So yes, postcards became a thing partly because of that the postcard record label. Postcards became quite hip so one of the things you always did in those days as a band was you would you would have your own postcards that you would give away or um, yeah, you would give away or send out to fans and all that sort of stuff. And we ended up having quite a quite a heavy correspondence via postcard with a lot of US fans that had bought her early obscure album and had, had written to her fan club. And right. our, manager the, our manager at the time was um, an expat American who lived in London. And she had this theory that if we, if we had a regular correspondence with these fans in America, we could get them to do anything for us. We could get them to put gigs on for us. And, yeah. Uh, which is eventually what happened. And that most wow. of that happened through sending sending them postcards and then receive. So our, our manager divided the band up or divided divided the, the sort of coterie of fans in America up between the four members of the band. So we would all have <laughs> our own relationship with so-and-so from Dallas or so-and-so from Minneapolis. Wow. Um, and you would, we were kind of grooming these people to help us. That's not a nice uh, word, Justin. And, well, I know it's not, but I, 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 I kind of use it advisedly. But, they were, I mean, they, they knew they were being manipulated, but they, were, they also found it incredibly um, charming that this little indie band from Scotland were writing them these personal postcards saying, oh, you know, tell me about your life and all that Wonderful. sort of stuff. And then but that's the kind of thing that record companies are desperate to do now via social media and yeah. spend fortunes with consultants working out how to do this best. And you were doing it on a very organic, physical, cardboardy way. Yeah. Well, I mean, like all those things, it has to come from the band themselves. I mean, it, it came from our manager, but she dragooned us into becoming part of this campaign of encouraging fans to get kind of get involved and her her theory which is correct about about american fans is that they're incredibly proactive they will do things for you if they love your love your music but the sort of british fans are a bit more reticent um and i think british fans like to, like you to keep your distance whereas american right. fans really treasure having that sort of personal relationship when you meet people in america um you, you know, if you go back to their houses and chat to them, well, you know, what was the first music you like? And they'll produce like, a, you know, 50 postcards that Robert Smith from The Cure sent them when they were 17, <laughs> you know. And they'll go, yeah, I, we, used to, we used to talk regularly via postcard. That's totally amazing. Wow. Because I th- isn't the impression now that, isn't it amazing that on Twitter you can connect with people who you perhaps would never dream of connecting with? Uh-huh. And, and there's a kind of um, almost an egalitarian thing about that, that we're all equal. We're all just one little set of digits on Twitter. Yeah. But you, this kind of was sort of going on in a more conventional correspondence. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing I've seen on the internet that isn't a kind of analogue, for want of a better word, of things that happened before. Very right. true. It's just, a, it's just a, on a much bigger scale... And it's much more efficient. But really, you know, I mean, when the internet first started, I just thought, well, that's the yellow pages or it's the phone book, (laughs) which is effectively what it was. And now it's the British Library and all sorts of things. 
and the Nazi Party. <laughs> and, um, yes, the Aryan... The, should you wish to follow somebody from the Aryan Nation, I'm sure that's yeah. it's right there in your doorstep. It's, yeah, it's everything. Here comes everything. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's fascinating. Now, before we see and hear uh, uh, about the cards that Justin and Helen have brought along, I'll give you a quick one of mine. Um, this is a sort of postcard from the past card, like I do on Twitter and in the book. Um, it's an old card from which um, I've selected a bit of the message. Um, and normally we can look over each other's shoulders and look at these cards in the studio, but today we're remote. Um, so um, actually Justin and Helen both have crib sheets on which they can see the pictures. Yep. So anyway, this is the first card I've got. Is a, it's, a, it's a very nice card of New Grimsby Harbour, um, Tresco, Silly Isles. And it's, um, it's a John Hind card. Uh, I'm sure listeners are very mm. familiar with John Hind. Very, very artfully composed cards. Actually, they sort of give the lie to what we were saying about poorly composed postcards because they're very artfully composed. This shows a um, extraordinary sort of sweep of the heart of the bay, mm-hmm. and and Hind liked to put people in red, in red uh, cardigans or, or, or jackets, sort of in the foreground to, to contrast so, with the green. So the bit of the message that amused me is, and I suppose it shows just the kind of the joy of contiguity, things being next to each other. Uh-huh. that postcards give you. So the message says, Jubilee flags are all over the place. We're looking forward to bonfire and fireworks on Tuesday. So this is 1977, Silver Jubilee. For uh-huh. Plus uh, a carnival here on the island. We'll try and film it. We've got a video camera or something. Uh, cold and windy here today, Sunday, but we're going to church at 3pm a jubilee service where the wow. children receive their crowns. There must have been wow. royal crowns or something they got given, coins. And then he says, potatoes, 10p a pound. I'm just about to put on a panful. Yum, yum. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. They're obviously very keen on the royal family, but let's get down to business. They've got cheap potatoes, potatoes. here. <laughs> the price of <laughs> potatoes. Yeah, literally, the price of potatoes, exactly. Um, there you go. Um, another quick one. Now, this one is a, is, is a message that doesn't isn't necessarily entertaining in itself, but I think it makes sense. It's uh, a card of Loch, uh, Loch Lomond. Yeah, that looks like Ben Lomond to me. Correct. Uh, both, they say here. Yeah. Um, and I can't the... fig- it's funny, that angle. I cannot figure where that's... It's taken from the north, I think, but there should be trees there. there there's, there's very little... So that, that really intrigued it's bit, me. It's that quite card. a moonscape, isn't it? Uh-huh. You probably can't see on your sheets, but actually has a nice deckle edge, you know, when the, because that sort of yeah. um, wobbly edge. And this yeah. is a card uh, published by Valentines of Dundee, who are one of the oldest um, uh, postcard publishers. And it actually was sent from Glasgow, um, uh, sent to uh, Guiseley in Yorkshire. And, and the message is, is very simple, and this is really with you in mind, Helen. It says, Thank you for my ladybird books. Love from Simon. <laughs> so it, it's, it's. Yeah, it's a little bit of. Documentary history about how, how popular those Ladybird books I were. I so want to know now what Ladybird books he was sent. Yeah, we'll never know. That, that we really will know. Unless mm. we've got in touch with Mr and Mrs Baines in Guiseley. And <laughs> so, Helen, how, how many... I mean, maybe this is a stupid question. How many Ladybird books are there? Are there thousands of them? Well, it's... it's, it's I can always avoid that question by simply uh-huh. saying, you know, define your terms. Because, yeah. Um, <laughs> The books that I'm interested in, the vintage books, the, uh-huh. the, the company was sold in the mid-70s. So if we count from the Second World War up to, yeah, the, the, the early 1970s, there were about 
500 different titles, 550. Right. But then, of course, they went back and we were over the 60s and 70s. So they're busy. The world is, is moving apace and technology is changing. So and uh, and society is changing. So they kept mm-hmm. going back and revising them. So is that, is uh, that two Yes, updating one, them, you know? of course. Yeah. Does that count yeah. as a separate book? Well, if you're a collector, everything counts. <laughs> and were they, were they translated into lots of different languages? They were. They were translated into, well, actually, nobody knows quite how many. We, we, the, the sort of documents had once said that they were translated into something like 60 different languages. Uh-huh. And at first we thought, no, that can't be right. But as time's gone on and we've discovered more and more tiny little African languages we'd, I'd almost never heard of, uh, you realise that, in fact, that probably was the case, yeah. Wow. So, I mean, that's kind of soft power, isn't it? Because they, they represented a very kind of British worldview, or certainly they did in my day. Absolutely, so that's kind yeah, of a way of totally. ex- exporting... I wouldn't even the... say British, I'd say very much English. Too. Yes, it is very um, English. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's right. I'm so, so many of them were translated into Arabic. Wow. Really? And you can only sit and puzzle the child <laughs> sitting in Algeria. <laughs> With, I don't know what to look for in summer or, or I don't know, uh, the wolf and the seven little kids. And I think, what did they make of this? I mean, there's quite funny Were they legitimate public uh, translations for, for the Arab world or were they uh, A mixture, pirates? a mixture. Right. A lot, a lot were very, yeah, it was in the 1980s they went back and sold a lot of their back catalogue to, um, yeah, quite legitimately. And so, but you do get some very dodgy ones that look like they've been done on a, on a photocopier in someone's office, you know, uh-huh. and sewn together and, and they're translated into Indonesian or something. Now, um, Justin and Helen, you've been very kind. You've, you've, you've prepared postcards of your own. Let's, let's get on to those. Helen, you've got a couple. Let's start with the first of yours. Um, which one would you like to start with? I can see one's a very different shape and size to the other. Yeah, I, I think we'll go chronologically. I think we'll start with Sydney. Sydney. Now, this is a sort of oversized, long postcard. Mm, Talk us right, through it. Yeah. Well, the postcard in itself is not... It's what's written on the back is not the thing. It's, <laughs> as, as I've said, I sent very few postcards. I received very few. And I've moved house masses of times. So lots of sort of stuff like this has got chucked out. So why has this one stayed with me? And it's for the view. I kept this one because when... In, it must have been 1987... Um, I went out to Australia on one of those work visas that young people could get then. And I had a really intense experience there. I was meant to be out there for a year, but I was only out there for a couple of months and I got seriously ill. And they had to put me on an aeroplane and come home again. So... Australia has, I was in Sydney, Australia has been unfinished business with me ever since. <laughs> and that's why I I clearly kept that postcard because of the... Was yeah. that to, re, to remind you to go back? Oh, I've got to go back one day. One day, one day I will go. Is there a message on the back of it or is this something you bought for yourself? There is a message and this is the friend of a friend of somebody that I made when I was out in Australia. I have to say, I say it was intense because it wasn't a, it was a magical period I um, met the most amazing, the kindest people. Oh. It, was, it really was like a book. You'd be walking down the street looking a bit lost and someone would pull up and rush over and say, are you lost? Can I help you? From the moment I sat on the plane, I'm, you know, I made friends with someone who offered me accommodation when I was out there. I'm, I stayed in touch for years with the receptionist of the nurse at the healthcare that I met oh. there. 
um, the kindness of the people there and the, mm-hmm. it was as magical as it was horrific to, to be in that situation. So, yeah, very, so, very fond memories of a place I've not been back to. And you, you, that was it, you left and you haven't been back and that was it? I couldn't. I mean, I was really told I probably didn't have very much time to live. It oh my was goodness. like that. And so I couldn't see how I could do that to my parents to sort of stay. Right. Uh, so I, I went home. How long were you there for? Uh, um, two months. But in that two months, everything slotted into place. I got myself a job teaching English, mm-hmm. um, uh, teaching to mainland Chinese students. Mm-hmm. Um, then I got uh, a, a house, which was right on the seafront in Kuji Bay, wow. which I would no doubt be completely priced out of now. And then the job started in, in five weeks' time. So... I thought, oh, well, there's just time to do some travelling. So I got myself a Greyhound bus ticket and sat on a bus and just worked my way up the coast, having the most amazing time. And uh, I got as far as the roads when the roads sort of stopped. And I suddenly realised that my job was starting in three days' time. And I'd not really taken in Australian distances into account because I worked my way up in such easy stages. I then had to sit on a Greyhound bus literally for three days oh my God. to get back and start work. You got the travelling in before you got sick. Yeah, I got a lot of travelling in. My job was amazing. It was five weeks on and then you had a week off and then right. five weeks on and then you had a week off. So I thought I was going to be doing Australia. It never came to pass. That was my one and only trip. But thank, the heaven, thank heavens I did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And that strange little moment in your life is is just about held on to by this slightly dinked and bumped postcard. Yeah, um, I look at that picture still and I can feel that yearning feeling. One day, Australia, we are unfinished business. Mm-hmm. Where but does also, that card actually, live? in that just two months, I had this sort of... I was, I was teaching English as a foreign language just because that's what you do when you're in your early 20s and you're, uh, and you're sort of trying to find a way of travelling around the world. But I had that sort of Damascene moment when I was in the classroom with these Chinese students. Um, and I thought, no, this is what I want to do. And Brilliant. it is indeed how I've made my living ever since pretty well. And uh, also the, the students there, I now make my living teaching Chinese. I mean, at the time I didn't speak any Chinese. Wow. But I was so fascinated by the way these students who were beginners and I didn't speak Chinese, how they were misunderstanding and how they were responding differently. That I it's always it shocking how, how, um, how much of our life we is sort of written early on in those decisions and things that happen and suddenly you see, oh, yes, of course it makes sense that I'm doing this now because of that that happened 40, 50 years ago. It's, exactly I so. think it's, it's, it's astonishing. It's not, 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 not in a tragic way, just because one thing follows another. But I find it interesting, really. That but just two young. months of my life had such an impact, yeah. 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 And it's, I think a lot, a lot of people, I think, look back on the choice, what they think were choices they made and think that they kind of forged some path through their life with free will. But actually, if you really analyse <laughs> your past, it's just all accidental. Things just happen that lead you to something else and then lead you to something else. And it's, you know, you change one of those things and your life could easily have gone a completely different different way. Exactly, exactly. Oh, well, look, that's a very good card. And uh, I, like, I like the powerful sort of, I don't know, I always think nostalgia is a slightly dirty word, but the, the tug of the past, I think, is is very mm. impressive. Um, Justin, now you've got a couple of cards. Which would you like to start us off with? Um, um, I don't know, actually, which one's, which one's the earlier one? That's April 85, and that one's... Uh, 
Oh, I can't quite see. I'll start with the, the one from Barbara, our manager, which is says summer sunset on it. It's a hell of a colour. It's yeah. I, I mean, it's a, I mean, sunset sunrises aren't they all just the same? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I suppose when you're there and feeling the, you know, the the warm wind and your on your skin, but yes. pictures of sunsets just never really do very much for me. I think so you're partic- right. Particularly, I mean, it's slightly nightmarish. The photograph. It looks like <laughs> something out of a. Um, yeah. It looks if like said, a colour version out of something from Night of the Hunter or something. Yeah, or Krakatoa exploding. Or <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is or a yeah, maybe, phenomenon you don't want. Or maybe a nuclear test in the Pacific. Yeah. Well, where is this from? It's a good question, actually. It's from the States. And I, when I was pulling these things out of my cardboard boxes in my garage, um, I, we, we had this American m- manager called Barbara Shores who, was, uh, who lived in London who started managing us in the early 80s and she always had this big dream to take a, a a British or Scottish indie band to America which she eventually did she eventually took us to America in 86 after we'd written all our postcards to all these fans and encouraged them to put gigs on for us <laughs> it <things>. worked <laughs> it did work but I didn't realize that she um she'd kind of run away from America because she was from a very strict Mormon family, and I think she had a story about her father burning her Beatles albums in the backyard. <laughs> so she ran away from home when she was very young and um, and eventually ended up in London because she was a big fan of postcard records from Glasgow. In fact, I mean, I didn't deliberately choose this because of the postcard link. <laughs> it's actually. fitting together very nicely. Yeah, it is. Um, but she must have gone to America on holiday in April '85. And she wrote us postcards back. But the postcards were obviously kind of encouraging us to think of America as this land of possibility because she had this idea that she wanted to take us there and show us America and show us what American people would be would do for you, you know, um, in the way that kind of Europeans probably don't, I think. So, yeah, it was quite curious pulling this out because I'd completely forgotten that she'd gone on this trip and written back to us. What does she say? Um, well, what she do? oh, the, the, well, it starts off the the pressures. And she's being ironic here. The pressures of being because we, we were eighty five. We'd released our first album. It hadn't come out in the states yet, I don't think. But of course, our first it was an, a, a humongous flop. Our first album. The <laughs> pressures of being a manager for the hottest act in pop. This is irony. Okay. Seem a million miles away. Incredible snowstorm on the way out. Saturday real real gale force stuff and then she kind of goes on but i think the idea behind this is is instilling in the band's minds that this is an amazing country and um it's it's full of sights and sounds and smells that you've never seen seen before uh and she's she sent us a lot of these postcards from this trip i'd completely forgotten about this and it was obviously as much as we were kind of grooming our fans to do things to put gigs on for us and, and, and actually put us up in their family's houses when we toured there with no money. Um, I think she's actually grooming us. She's telling us that this is somewhere you want to see, you know, which indeed it was. And did it live up to your expectations after well, this? It, it, well, it, did, it completely confounded our expectations because you had this terrible British snobbery that America was full of stupid people. Yeah. Um, because we watched all these awful imported American TV programs. Um, and then when we got there, we realised the TV programmes were irrelevant and what was relevant was kind of classic American cinema. And everywhere you went was 
a film set from a, I mean, a lot of the time from like a film noir or something. Right. Um, and it just bowled us over. And then the hospitality of, mm. of the people bowled us over. Uh, you know, people who, not wealthy people, who would just open their apartments to us and let 10 people live there for a week and open their fridges and, and you know, wheel out the barbecue into the, into the yard. Um, and it was so, yeah, that the same right from the start, from the very early days when, as you said, you, you, know, you were penniless musicians? Yeah, well, I mean, that happened in 80... The American tour that we did happened in 86 when we'd been dropped by our record label and we had 2,000 quid in the bank, which we just spent on airfares to go to America. And the idea was that we would we would busk to pay for gas money so we could drive between gigs because the gigs were all thousands of miles apart. Um, and we lost all the money on the first gig because nobody turned up to the first oh. gig. Wow. So then we basically begged. Um, so we would... The second gig, we would we we had T-shirts to sell and things to raise a bit of money, but at points people would just throw money onto the stage because I would make a kind of appeal and say, look, I remember when we played in a record shop in LA, and the next we were staying with people, so we were getting fed and watered, but the next gig was in Iowa, oh <laughs> Iowa which is a four day four day drive. We had literally no money. Um, Ian had a Ian had his parents' credit card, which I think we used to as a guarantee to rent the van from New York. But uh, yeah, at one point in LA, I just kind of put out an appeal and said, "Look, if, if anybody can help help us <laughs> to pay for for gas to get to Iowa," and people just threw twenty dollar bills on stage, wow. and that got us to Iowa, along with a along with a bunch of. Um, snack food that uh, Barbara's brother had stolen from a supermarket for us. <laughs> That's amazing. And and uh, I guess those experiences do stay with you, those early days of uh, yeah, those form- formative singing for your years. supper. Well, it's like, you know, Helen's saying, I guess everybody has that kind of backpacking story or something that that um, that really forms you in your, in your early 20s, maybe. Uh, and for us, it was that American tour. I guess you had more riding on it than than just a you know a, a trip. It meant yeah, a I think it was it was sold to us as a working holiday, but it, there was nothing holiday <laughs> about it. It was it was really just. She survival. sounds like a very good manager. <laughs> she, she was a she was a genius in her own way, you know. So no sunsets, genius. no sunrises. No, we did have a band meeting at the Grand Canyon during oh, as, the, wow. as the sun was going down, where we nearly split up, and our, uh, because we, we, we were under. An, a huge amount of pressure because we were hungry and we were sleeping, 10 of us were sleeping in and outside of the van. Some of us slept on the roof, some of us slept on picnic benches. I, I tended to stay inside the van. Um, and so we were under, there was a huge amount of pressure and there was lots of, it was very, very tense. We were driving through the night most of the time. So the three people that were driving didn't get enough sleep. Okay. So yeah, we nearly broke up, but we our, our guitar player Brian at the time made this kind of Churchillian speech at the Grand, <laughs> the Grand Canyon, <laughs> saying, "No, we're going to go to LA. We'll be there in two days, and we'll we'll do this gig, and we'll get a record deal." And that kind of inspired us you all. You know, this so we, has we to be a film, on. right? I was going to say the same thing, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, have you written the screenplay, Justin? No, it's just one of these things we constantly bore people about. Because <laughs> it was, I mean, no, no other band of our generation had that kind of, a, kind of an experience where you were, you were just either sleeping on the roadside or, or being catered for by uh, fans' parents on the whole. 
Yeah. Well, uh, they, you know, what do they call it now? Keeping it real. It's authenticity, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely real. And it also it, it, it exposed us to a side of American culture that rock bands don't see because yeah. once you're in the in the corporate machine, you're on a tour bus and you're in your in your own bubble, quite literally. You're on that submarine, you get off once a day to do a gig and then you get back in the submarine and you're not with uh, Americans. You're, you, and the people you meet tend to be the kind of bullshit artists that you meet backstage. They're not real people, really. Um, so it was... Uh, um, eye-opening to to see America from from the inside. Brilliant, brilliant. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that card with us. Um, I'll do one quick one more of mine now. This is a it's a card published by Dennis. Um, Dennis were in Scarborough, and um, they had a series of different colour techniques they used on their printing. This is a picture of um, Fistral Beach in Newquay, and they had a thing called um, New Colour and Real Colour. And I think they had something called, was it blue colour? Anyway, they had all kinds of colour techniques they're very proud of. Postcard manufacturers like to boast about how realistic their colours are. Um, this card is from 1959, so it predates us all. Um, and very little does these days. So this, is, um, <laughs> this it, it touches on a phenomenon that I don't know if you two will remember, but let's, let's see. It says um, someone called... Joe, I think, maybe, or Joy, but more likely Joy, I think. And she's writing to Chislehurst in Kent. She says, We spent the afternoon here. I hope you get the cream okay. I've sent half a pound, but apparently I wrote a label out for a quarter pound tin. But the lady assured me it would be all right. <laughs> Tomorrow we start for home. So sending cream from the West Country was a big thing. Ah. And I think a clotted cream. And, and I think, I guess, there weren't really supermarkets then. You couldn't go to Waitrose and buy creme fraiche and double cream and clotted cream and every kind of cream. So you'd get it when you went to Cornwall or Devon. I think it might still be a thing today, you know. I, think, yeah. I mean, I, I was at university in the in the southwest and... Uh, it was big then, of course, but I think it, you can still get the... And that was very recent, Helen. ...or something. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, I was briefly a cream boy. Um, Hello. Which was a... No. Uh, I, mean, I, I was thinking when you were reading that postcard, I, I thought... Ears? I, I collect ladybird books. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought that when you were reading that postcard, I thought cream must be a euphemism for marijuana or something. I was trying oh. to date the right drug for the period. Um, but yeah, there was a thing, it was... It was much better paid if you were good at it than being a paper boy, where you just got a, a, a rubbish wage. But if you were a cream boy, you bought your cream from the cream man and you would go around the suburbs and knock on your clients' doors and you would get tips and you would wow. sell them fresh cream door to door and that was quite a big thing. Was this in Leicestershire? No, this was in Glasgow. Okay. Uh, I took over somebody's round a couple of, of weekends. It was very <laughs> odd. Very odd experience. It was, it was a bit like being a door... Well, you were a door-to-door -door salesman. Uh, and, of course, if you you had to sell all your cream because then it would go off and you'd paid for it, you could end up losing money. Oh, and I remember really? at one point, at one point being so thirsty that I just <laughs> just drank a tub of cream. And, oh. let, and let, let me tell you, single single cream, let alone double cream, is not thirst-quenching. <laughs> I bet you suffered for that. <laughs> yes, I think I did. Yeah, that's that's a hell of an image. <laughs> I, I can taste it as well. Oh dear! So is is that card kind of retouched? I think so. Yeah, I uh -huh. think they they play around with it a lot. The grass looks a bit suspicious. 
Yeah, the sky is def. Those clouds are very, very neat. Yeah, I think it's had a different effect on it than your your sunset, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, photography is all constructed anyway. We all know that, but I think mm -hmm. postcards have never been shy of of um, artifice. It, yeah, exactly. Um, and idealization, isn't it? It's kind of making here's your ideal image. Here's what. Uh -huh. Here's where you should have gone. <laughs> If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Podcasts from the Past, the Postcard Podcast. And my guests today are songwriter Justin Curry and Queen of the Ladybirds, Helen Day. <laughs> Now, uh, a surprise, we've received a postcard. Um, this is a postcard from Tintagel. Uh, and it has a picture of the round table on it, uh, 100% authentic. It's a multi-view, uh, the cove, the, the old post office, the Vale of Avalon and King Arthur's Castle. There you are. And um, the the card is from Lance Harrington of Colchester and Essex. And Lance says, the answer is air on a G-string. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, Lance, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> Now, Helen... Your second card. What have you got for us uh, on your doormat? Right. Well, my second... We're not in Australia anymore. We're not in Australia. We are in North Italy. We are in... Lovely. In Veneto, in Italy. Um, and it's a picture of a very old um, Italian piazza with the hills rising in the background. And it looks blissful. Out and, uh, yeah, uh, chairs and uh, a few shops selling wares. And in the foreground are two 
baskets. But handwritten next to the <laughs> baskets is the word boxes. And then there's an arrow, in case I wasn't sure. Very helpful. Pointing to the baskets. Now, this postcard was sent to me by a then ex-boyfriend. Because after my Damascene moment in Australia, before I came home again, when I got home and had got well again, I did training to become a teacher of English as a foreign language. And then I got a gig teaching English at the British Council in Italy. Nice. And you don't so muck about. I, I don't, no, no, it was... Uh, <laughs> it was uh, yeah, I didn't let the grass grow under my feet in those days. Um, and had a most spectacular time and had a lovely Italian boyfriend who was as kind and nice and sweet as anybody you could ever meet and travelled around Italy with him lots, but discovered after a few years that much as I loved Italy, it wasn't a place I could ever imagine living forever. And I thought after three or four years, well, if it's not my forever place, I'm going to have to come home, which meant leaving my Italian boyfriend. So he then decides he's going to see if he can live in Britain. So he came to Britain for about a year and discovered that much as he loved Britain, he couldn't live there forever and he then went back again. However, it was very tricky for him because Italy it was, it probably still is a very stable society in many ways and you don't up sticks and go backpacking for a year. You don't, he went to Britain to do a, came to England to do a, an MS, a, 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 a master's in the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. So he wasn't exactly bumming around, but it, it was still very, very hard for him to slot back into society. So there was a, a long period when we'd both moved on, but he couldn't slot back in. And so he'd send me things like this, reminding me of, oh, do you remember this? And do you remember that? And the sad thing is, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, memory. <laughs> so he's put boxes and drawn an arrow to some baskets and he's referenced it. You will remember this. And I haven't got a clue what he's talking about. Had you maybe used the Italian word for boxes to describe baskets or something? And, and that was <laughs> funny at the time. <laughs> don't know we did speak italian was our language together although uh -huh. it's written on this postcard in english interestingly well, i haven't got a clue what it was about and that just seemed to have its own pathos Absolutely. yeah it does it's very very odd i'm very fond of these um interventions where someone writes on the front of a card because uh, mm. it, it uh it, it just adds adds to the the layers of meaning i think well it does you get the same thing with ladybird books you get children who've written comments, ah. which are an absolute window. You know, a Peter and Jane learning to read book, which says, books are fun. And someone has oh. written, no, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And of course, it's the, it's the isn't it that um, conflict between the mass produced artifact and the very oh, personal absolutely. comment that yeah. they don't always gel quite the way they're meant to. <sighs> Yeah, graffiti on the wall. And so this is a, a memory of a forgetting or a, a souvenir. Yes, of... if you like. <laughs> very good, very good. I think that's, um, that's exactly what postcards should be doing, reminding us of things we can't remember anymore and we still can't remember them. We still but can't remember. I experienced that the other day when I was looking through postcards. I just, several from people, I, I had no idea who they were. <laughs> and we obviously had quite an intimate correspondence for a number of years. I could not remember who these people were. Oh. Isn't that awful? That's awful, but it's true. 
Yeah. It, maybe it's also a function of surviving, though. You sort of, you do, you make a path and certain bits get left behind. Otherwise, you're not making that path. Yeah, yeah. And, yes, and, yes. And, I'm sure it's bits, like stereotypes bits, and generalising. We have to simplify, <laughs> don't we? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. You've got you to... You well, you, you get you those back. people that do remember everything and they say it's torture. Ah. <laughs> well, you mean like a real sort of psychological complaint? Yeah, you, people that remember every detail of every day. And if you yes. ask them what happened on the 9th of December 1975, they can tell you everything that happened and it's not, it's not a good thing. No, no. Well, you get another breed of people. Don't you meet this when you've been interviewed by a journalist or something? Journalists, I don't know whether it's a honed skill or whether they become journalists because of the skill, but they can become absolute seeming experts uh. on a topic in a, two, two shakes of a lamb's tail. And then if you ask them a question about the same thing a month later, gone. They've oh, yeah. cleared the memory banks completely. Yes. And filled yeah. it for the next, the topic of the next article or interview. I guess, yes, I guess the human brain is a bit like a hard disk. It just has to delete as it goes mm. on. Some more efficiently than others. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think that's a fascinating, Carl. I, lo- I love the fact that you've answered, you've effectively posed questions rather than answers with that, uh, Helen. That's, 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 I think I prefer, I prefer questions to answers, really. I think, I think they're more useful to us in life. Now, Justin, you've got the final card from you. Um, is also from Europe, I think. Yes, this is from, I'm not sure where it's from. This is from Ian Harvey, my uh, songwriting partner and, and partner in Delamitri for God knows how many years. 40, 50, I don't know. I can't be 50. He's an um, original member with you, is that right? Yes, uh, we started in 82. Um, and I think, this, again, this is from the same year, I think, 85, I'm not sure. But he... I remember he went off. We, we lived together. We, we, we had a couple of flats together, so we lived at very close quarters. He and I for years, which was not always the best thing. Going to you know, <laughs> eating together, getting on the bus together to go to rehearsals together, and coming coming back home together. How um, was it? You were there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, I mean, it it certainly it sort of bound us as as closely as brothers, but it, it didn't make life it didn't make life particularly easy for either of us. But he sent me a postcard to the flat that we shared. And I think his parents took him on holiday. So we would be in our early 20s at this point um, and with no money. I think Ian was on the brew at the time, on the dole. So he would have... He, that would probably be why he went on holiday with his, with his parents. Um, it's got a rather curious picture of, I guess, some kind of idealised idea of the peasantry on the, on the front. Yes, um, yes. You could do a uh, PhD on images of peasantry in Europe, definitely. <laughs> it's, it's all there, isn't it? <laughs> And it says, I thought you'd appreciate this photographic gem enigmatically entitled Typical Dressers. Everybody here is dressed like this, no sunburned, wobbly breasts or drunken cockneys, reading yesterday's Daily Star, Honest Ian. Yeah, he went on a, he went on a beach holiday, which was really anathema to him because Ian's a bit of a culture vulture. But I, I do remember he came back and he had the best suntan ever and he was oh, covered really? in freckles. And I remember being really jealous that he'd managed to uh, go away and have a beach holiday. So, so that, the, that's... The... His, despite his snobbery about the beach, it worked for him. It's exactly. He yes, he was being a bit snooty, and I, I was like, "Don't be, don't be snooty." You've been sitting at the beach for two weeks, and I've been, <laughs> I've been working in a bloody bugger restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> you had a burger tan. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Literally from that charcoal grill. Let me tell you. Oh my god, well, I'm very snooty about beach holidays, but my god, if you've fan- ever managed to get away and lie on a beach for a week, it really does you good. So. Uh, re- well, yeah, my, I, I, I've always. I was very disdainful about them until my girlfriend Emma 
persuaded me that actually if you're going to go on holiday, just go and lie on a beach for two weeks and read books. Mm. Uh, and there, there's a lot to be said for it, has to be, has to be said. It's just sort of low ambition, but it is good for your soul or, or for your mental health, as we now say. Yeah, yeah so. and I think just that thing where, unlike going on a, around some marvellous city and going to incredible art galleries, when you lie on the beach, when you look up from your book, you're gazing into the, on, into the infinite horizon. So your eyes are just constantly relaxing. You know, they're, they're focusing on the furthest point you could possibly see. It's like being at the top of a hill for two weeks in the sun, you know, oh. which would be bliss. Yeah, I think <laughs> we're all under lockdown. This, uh, this is an image which really yeah, we're, we're stirs pining. the heart, doesn't it? We're pining. <laughs> <laughs> pining for the beach. Well, it'll come back to us soon, I hope, um, you know, give it time, give it time. Well, that's very good. So th- thank you for that card. Thank you both for the cards you've you've shared with us. Um, I often say the same thing. I never know where the postcards will send us. Um, I'm delighted you share them with us, or with me, with, with with each other, with the the podcast listeners. Um, a reminder for everyone at home: images of these cards, and I've got the images in front of me. Um, they're going to be on the blog postcardfromthepast.co.uk, so you can see what they look like. See, we haven't made it up. Um, and before we let uh, Justin and Helen log off from this wireless studio, um, there's one more card that I would normally hand over you to you to look at, but I've got it here and pictures are shared around. This is a special oversized postcard. So take a look, please, the pair of you, at the image of um, that sort of um, barge on a river with a castle in the background. And, um, and what's the white dot? Is that just... Well, uh, normally you could hold this in your hand and sort of pl- let the light play on it. The reason this has a dot is the dot is nothing. The dot is not there. The dot is a hole. This is a postcard record. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it's a, a postcard that you can put on a record player, uh, which were a popular thing in the... 60s and 70s, I think. So it must have a transparent flexi disc. Yeah. Yeah, stuck over it. But I think even finer the film than a flexi disc. A flexi disc were pretty thin, weren't they? But this is even finer. It's more like just the regular um, film that you have on a shiny card, perhaps. Uh But it's stamped with with grooves. Um, Now, I I don't know if either of you recognise the image on the card. Is it the rain or somewhere? You, you're 100%, yes, top marks. Right. It is the Rhine. It's um, it's actually a place called Dragon Rock or Drachenfels, Drachenfels mm-hmm. um, on, on the Rhine. Um, and it looks like it's a working river there with that barge. Yeah. Um, now, by the magic of whatever software we're using today, I think we can hear what this postcard sounds like. <laughs> Oh, I was hoping for Oompa. Well, <laughs> bird song's pretty good. Melody d'amour, serenade de liebe, chouchou colibri. Now, that's so catchy. <laughs> it is. It's a jollier sound than I expected. Yeah, absolutely. I, I say the same, I, I repeat myself a lot. I say the same thing. 
It's not bad for a piece of cardboard. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean... It's a soundtrack, isn't it, for an early 70s film? Yeah. Yeah. When something dreadful is about to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, you could, you could sell this to Tarantino. Very much so. It would be the most awful carnage there's, going on. There's blood everywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, there's blood everywhere. It says it all. That's extraordinary. It's pretty good quality. I, I bought second-hand records that sound worse than this. But the, the, the song does not in any way go with the image. No, it doesn't. No, and that's what I love about it. Yeah. Um, it's a bit like the message on the back of a card may or may not refer to the uh -huh. picture. Uh-huh, you know. These, these are the disjunctions. Well, as Dragon Rock continues to spin on the Rhine at 45 RPM, that's it for this time on Podcasts from the Past. I'd very much like to thank my first-class guests for sharing the postcards from their pasts, Helen Day and Justin Curry. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Bye for now. Ein liebes Lied, dein süßes Tweet, 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 das in die Herzen zieht, Melodie d'amour, Serenade der Liebe, Schuschukolibri, sing die Melodie. You can see more postcards with their messages posted every day on Twitter. Do follow me at Past Postcard. And you can buy the book, Postcard from the Past, by me, Tom Jackson, at Amazon and all good booksellers. And if you're looking for podcast production, check out wardorstudios.co.uk. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.